Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for July 6, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about some breaking Star Wars news, and I'll sit down and chat with Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige and director Peyton Reed to talk about the new film Ant-Man and the Wasp and the future of the MCU. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Uh, Star Wars news. That's what's going on. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars Episode Nine is gearing up to start production, and we're starting to hear some of the big casting news. And today it was revealed that J.J. Abrams is going to be reteaming with Carrie Russell. Tell us about it. Yeah, so Carrie Russell, who uh, worked with Abrams on a TV show called Felicity that was on the WB back in the late 90s, uh, has been cast in Star Wars Episode Nine. So we're not sure exactly what role she's going to be playing but we knew, we do know that the role calls for action heavy fight scenes so place your bets now whether she's going to be fighting for the resistance or the first order and uh you know as you mentioned this is a reunion of sorts she worked with jj abrams on his you know early uh tv project felicity and also retained with him in mission impossible three Yes. Yes. And uh you know there's there's a big connection uh he, she also starred in um Abrams' friends, uh, Matt Reeves, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, so there, there, there's a big connection between that whole group. Uh, yeah, I guess the question is, you know, who is she playing already on Twitter? Because, you know, a white woman with brown hair has been cast in a Star Wars movie. We have to assume it is Rey's mother, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have to assume that, but I know that Star Wars fans are going to assume that. I, I feel like, and Peter, you may feel completely differently about this, so I'm interested to hear what you think. But I, I think if she is playing Ray's mother, I really hope we get a scene where it, she's just a nobody and maybe the, the action-heavy fight scenes are Ray's mom getting in like drunken bar fights in a in a space bar on some planet somewhere because I, I think anything else any any uh, larger importance uh, imbued on that character would dramatically undercut the powerful messages of Star Wars: The Last Jedi. So I, I really hope that J.J. Abrams well, uh, resists that temptation. Well, what powerful message are you talking about? 
Well, the idea that that anybody can that the force uh, is a is a thing that can be tapped into from anyone, and and the whole thing of of Ray's parents being nobody of any you know intergalactic significance, right? Like the, you know if if Ray goes on this uh, quest to track down her parents in episode nine and finds that her mom is Felicity uh, or is uh, Carrie <laughs> Russell. Uh, Felicity, by the way, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you! Uh, I, I thought you were talking about the yeah. Okay, <laughs> is Carrie Russell, who's like some badass, you know, space fighter, who um, you know is maybe a force user, or like some warrior, or anybody other than what she said in the previous movie, which is my parents are nobody. Um, you know, they abandoned me. They were they were junkers who traded her for a drink, basically. Um, then yeah, I, I feel like it's it's going to uh, it, it's going to uh, like lighten the. Um, or, or or soften the uh, the message there, right? Don't you think? Well, um, you know, let me place that devil's advocate here for a second and say that, you know, there are a lot of Star Wars fans that came out of The Last Jedi and don't believe that that's the truth. You know, it is coming from an unreliable narrator. It's coming from Kylo Ren, who is, you know, evil. But she says it first, though. Um, yeah, I, I think she fears that, but she doesn't know that. Well, one thing we don't know is that she has come to accept that that fact is true. I feel like that revelation comes at the moment of, you know, right before a huge climactic action scene. And uh, actually, that's one of my biggest disappointments of Last Jedi is that we don't actually get to see her deal with that revelation. So who's to say that she isn't still interested in seeking out and trying to find, you know, her parents? <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the whole scene in the cave in The Last Jedi where, you know, she yeah. looks in the mirror and it's the whole thing where it's just the infinite versions of her and, <laughs> and all of that. I think that, like, thematically that works so well in that movie where, you know, she is she, – she the power lies in her the whole time. It's yeah. not a lineage thing. But I, I don't know. I oh, guess – I'm not maybe... arguing against that. And I'm not even saying that if Carrie Russell appears as Ray's mom in episode nine that – this would you know that she would be a jedi you know have right, force right. powers or anything like that um other people have you know claimed that maybe she'll appear in a flashback i'm not hmm. sure why we'd need a flashback <laughs> um, but uh do you think carrie russell would be too old to be raised no i guess she probably wouldn't no i don't think no. so no uh but i i guess most people are probably assuming that she would be the modern age of you know daisy ridley as a mother um hmm. yeah okay so let, let's put that aside that that's probably not happening <laughs> let's, <laughs> I let's not. admit that but i think it is possible uh we, we should say that you know jj abram set up a lot of things in his force awakens and ryan johnson kind of threw those things away you know jj abram's coming back and he can make the slate whatever he wants it to be <laughs> right so uh it is possible uh you know who do you think she's going to play if she's not playing Ray's mom? Uh, you know, my first guess is that she's going to be playing a resistance leader because it, if you if you do some math, you see that uh, we've lost quite a few powerful women in the resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, we lost uh, Holdo and we we were probably going to lose uh, Leia. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, maybe maybe she would fill that role. Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely a great 
Yes. Um, the other thing, and <clears throat> maybe this is just me hoping that uh, Carrie Russell has a little bit of uh, of fun in store for her. Maybe she's able to sort of sink her teeth into some scenery coming up. But I, I'm kind of hoping that maybe she either takes the place of uh, Phasma or is a Phasma-esque character, you know, like a, a First Order person who's sent out to uh, to finally clean up the Resistance once and for all, and maybe that's where that sort of action-heavy physicality will come in for her character. Um, I, I just feel like anytime somebody like that can play against type and play a villain, it's always a lot of fun to see them like that. So, um, you know, on a selfish level, I kind of hope that that's where it goes, but I think your guess is probably yeah. a lot more, uh, it makes a lot more sense. Okay, how about this ridiculous uh you know, bit of speculation. What if she played one of the Knights of Ren? Oh, wow. Is, is, she, I mean, is she too old? Like, does it not mesh with, uh, you know, uh, Adam Driver is much younger, right? She is older than Adam Driver. She's 42 and Adam Driver is 34. So, I mean, it's not that big of an age gap, I guess. I don't know. I feel, I feel like if they were going to the same Jedi Academy, that we, we don't know that the Knights of Ren were all... Do we know that they were all uh, members of... I, I don't I think so. I, I mean, I think that's like the assumption, right? But I, I think they're, and especially with Abrams and his whole mystery box thing, like you never know that you could always throw in a, a monkey wrench into that equation and, and maybe have like the Knights of Ren have, uh, maybe she was part of the first class of the Knights of Ren or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just want to know if they're ever going to follow up on this Knights of Ren thing that J.J. Abrams set up in Force Awakens and has not been really mentioned since that time. Maybe Carrie Russell is playing Constable Zuvio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other thing we should probably talk about is, uh, uh-oh, this means more women in Star Wars. And uh, <laughs> the men on Twitter are probably going to be angry, that the man, man babies. Uh, Give me a break. <laughs> Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're going to see more of this. Didn't the story say that there's going to be more casting coming soon? Yeah. Um, so Variety's report says, and I'll quote it directly here, uh, Abrams will likely cast two more actors by the time the film begins production at the end of the month. So it looks like we've got more uh, Star Wars Episode Nine news on the way. Yeah. And we, you know, we lost Carrie Fisher. Uh, Holdo died. Phasma apparently died maybe died um, we don't know so i think they're gonna probably have to fill some of those roles with female uh actresses but uh who knows uh the variety story interestingly uh, first said that uh lawrence casting was writing the script but that turned out to be an error so we shouldn't mention that uh do you have any other thoughts on this bit of star wars news um, I really like Carrie Russell's work in Mission Impossible 3, and uh, that was in 2006, so it's been a long time yeah. since she's collaborated with Abrams on a, on a you know mainstream project like this, and I'm excited to see the two of them you know get back to work together. I know she's been working on The Americans for a long time on FX, but now that that series is done, maybe she's going to uh, step back into some, uh, more movie roles, and I think you know she definitely has the physicality. Um, you know, Abrams sort of made his career on on shows like Felicity and Alias with the uh, with leading ladies who who have a lot of uh, range dramatically and physically and i think uh carrie russell should be a movie star so that, i'm glad to see her in this movie yeah no i'm also a fan of carrie russell i have not gotten into the americans did you ever watch felicity no i didn't that was like just a bit before my time i think oh my god i wonder if it holds up it was such a great show and 
basically Alias without the without the spy stuff. It was more <laughs> dealing with college. Uh, I, I wonder. I wonder if you dove into it and just tried to watch a couple episodes. If you could relate, because uh, I feel like you know our our college days are behind us. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, she's great. I'm excited to have her in here, no matter who she plays. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't care if she's Frey's mom. I don't care if she's a uh, resistance leader. I don't care if she's, you know, part of the first order. Uh, I'm just glad that she's part of this movie. And I think we've, we, we, we've said as much as we possibly can about this news topic. So fingers uh, crossed for constable Zuvio. <laughs> I think that's probably the most unlikely of them. all. <laughs> but again, it is JJ. So you, you never, never know. know. <laughs> they could have that, uh, you know, trademark solo scene where you know, the mask comes off Constable Zuvio and reveal <laughs> Carrie Russell. I love it. Uh, okay, let's move on to our feature presentation, which I, I did some interviews with Marvel head Kevin Feige and Ant-Man and the Wasp direct- director Peyton Reed about uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is out in theaters now. Uh, for the most part, these interviews are spoiler free, but I would probably say don't listen to these interviews if you haven't seen the film, because we do talk about plot points. First up is my interview with Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige. We talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp. We talk about Spider-Man Far From Home the Disney streaming service, Infinity War, theme parks, and much, much more. I should say before you listen to this interview, I did uh, come into this junket wearing a T-shirt that had Michael Jackson next E.T. on it. So that is what Kevin Feige is referring to at the start of this interview. Here is Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige. Hey! How's it going, Kevin? Shirt ever. Thank you. You know, Taika has that as a poster that he carries with him in every production office he goes to. Really? I did not know that. It is. I hadn't. I hadn't seen it for probably thirty years until he had that. It was on his office door on Ragnarok. It was that colored poster. Yeah. Because it came with an album or something. He did. That was where it came out. Yeah. That's what it was. He had the album. Um, (laughs) It's it's cool that you know that. Uh, before we get to Marvel, I have to ask you one question sure. about rumors. There's been rumors re- recently that y- you might be involved in the future of Star Wars. No. No. Only in my, only in my backyard with my action figures. <laughs> okay. Uh, in this film, uh, or in uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, we get to see more of the quantum realm. And I was kind of under the impression that time does not go by in the same way in the quantum realm as it does here, but... Uh, she aged. She aged. So I was wondering, what's up with that? <laughs> uh, much like quantum mechanics itself, it is all very complicated, uh, and it is, and it is, uh, you know, there there are various. If you if you notice in this film, he talks about sh- she through Scott Lang says, "Meet me in the in the in the wastelands beyond the void." There are various levels that we check in on, so there, there, there are many, many different layers to the, to the quantum realm. So there are layers um, that time does not pass by. That's what they've told us. Yeah. They've told us that it that it, you know, time and physics and space work very differently down there. Um, but that was part of a that was a that was a big question during the development process. And as usual, you're the first one to 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 even <laughs> pick on it a little bit, yeah. which is. Should she have aged or not? And we could do. We felt that in the quantum realm, we could justify either one, um, but that ultimately, uh, 
you want to have an emotional reunion with Michael Douglas, an emotional reunion with, with Evangeline Lilly. Uh, and our first instinct had always been specifically M- Michelle Pfeiffer yeah. from, that, from that first movie. Um, it felt like it should be, it should be somebody who's the, who's the right age, as opposed to um, uh, you know, Michael Douglas with, with somebody who has not aged, or Evangeline Lilly connecting with somebody who's not aged. Um, that that just adds another layer of sort of sci-fi weird. weirdness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I we're not afraid of sci-fi weirdness. I love it. But, <laughs> I mean, uh, as evidenced by Guardians and Thor. Yeah, right. Uh, that first scene uh, with Michelle <clears throat> de-aged. I mean, all the de-aging that you guys have done looks incredible, but she looks like she stepped out of a movie from thirty years ago. It it looks so good. And while I was watching it, I was wondering. If you guys ever end up doing like a a prequel, would you guys use the same like if you were gonna do a Ant Man prequel with Hank right. Pym or Black Widow prequel, would it be Scarlet or would it be uh, Douglas D H or would it be a new? Uh, well, I think having the option is pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I think having the technology and even without spoiling anything, um, Sam Jackson is shooting a movie for us right now that takes. Where he's entirely twenty five years younger the whole movie. Yeah. Um, so that'll certainly be the one. And Coulson, that, right? And Coulson. So th- that'll be the first one where where it's a a character for the whole movie as opposed to a glimpse at a certain period of time. It's the whole movie. So so it's possible, assuming assuming that works. Um, it's possible. Yeah. Um, it's very good when you are starting, by the way, with somebody like Michelle Pfeiffer or. Michael Douglas, or for that matter, Sam Jackson or Clark Gregg. Why well, do you have all the reference material, or you have all the reference material, and they have aged amazingly? Yeah, <laughs> they've not aged like normal humans. It's like Paul Rudd. Yeah, it, these are these. Paul are, Rudd looks like he stepped out of Clueless. I don't yeah. understand it. Yeah, it's, he somehow <laughs> can do that effect in real life. Yeah, uh, you know, um, you had to, when you were planning this, you were planning alongside Infinity War. At what point did you know, like, this is going to be a total prequel and it, we won't really kind of cross the streams? Until... The whole time. The whole time it was, uh, we, knew that, we knew that we wanted to feel like a, a standalone movie. We wanted to tonally do a very different movie from Infinity War. Um, and as Peyton said on the panel today, that it was more interesting for us to deal with the fallout of, of Civil War. Uh, to deal with what kind of rift that caused. Because they seemed to be... Uh, you know, a, a good trio at the end of Ant-Man 1, Hank and Hope and Scott. Um, but knowing how, how Hank felt about it, knowing that Wasp was not there in Germany in Civil War, what did that, what did that do to their relationship? And he was in prison and got broken out. So w- we had to address that. Yeah. Um, and it led to this, to this very good notion of, uh, of the final 48 hours of, uh, final three days of uh, house arrest. You know, you said uh, in an interview this week that this film largely connects with Avengers 4. And I, uh, I think it answers, you know, where's Ant-Man, the question that people were asking with uh, Infinity War. But uh-huh. does this connect to Avengers 4 in any other greater ways that we're not that people might not be seeing on first watch? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you hit that thumb? No? Okay. Uh, you just announced Spider-Man Far From Home, the title. I didn't. Or you didn't. Uh, the master spoiler himself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did um, it's a fun it's a fun yeah. it's a fun gag that's half 
fun and half real. <laughs> I've heard. I've heard. Uh, With he and Ruffalo. Yeah. Um, like, what did you do? <laughs> uh, I was wondering, since this is going to take place mostly in London, or you've insinuated that... Shooting in London. Lar- large... Shooting in London. But there, I think you said there are scenes theater. in London. Yes. Uh, and you've also said in the past that the plan for these Spider-Man movies is to kind of have another Marvel cameo in each one, kind of like you did with Tony Stark. I um, did? You did in some interview a long well, time ago. Well, it's in the MCU, so... yeah. Um, I'm wondering, because London, there, there is a uh, sanctum there. Is Doctor Strange going to be the one in this one? No. No. Okay. I'd be coy about it, but no. Okay. I don't want to get people excited. Okay. Uh, but Benedict and Holland have, have liked the idea of working together. <laughs> yeah. Well, that'd be fun. It was my, my, my first thought when I heard rumors of Mysterio. So I was like, oh, it'd be cool to have the magic guy and the magic guy. But anyways, um, how are you going to market these movies with Avengers 4 coming? Like, we've heard Amy had said that the uh, Spider-Man takes place minutes after Avengers 4. But you've got to start marketing Spider-Man before Avengers 4 comes out. So doesn't that pose, like, an interesting problem? Uh, it does. I mean, I think much like, much like Ant-Man and the Wasp, which, when you see the movie, connects and you see how it connects... In the marketing, you don't show that part. Yeah, um, I think we'll very much feel like a like a, uh, a return to the fun of of homecoming and Peter with his class and going to places we don't usually see Peter Parker and a new villain and that will be the that will be the focus, both of the movie, but certainly of the marketing. Uh, in this movie, uh, Goggins says he's working for someone. We don't really get to find out who he's working for. Is that something that? It is seeds that are being planted. Can you uh, give us a tease? A little bit. I mean, those are there are there are deeply planted seeds, and there are less deeply planted seeds. <laughs> uh, uh, he says shield and hydra don't exist anymore. He's working for people that you know are dangerous people. Um, but they're interested in quantum realm for some reason. Interested in that that because it's the new it's the new thing. Um, we'll see where that goes. Um, Disney has a streaming service coming up. I know largely you in the TV have kind of been separate entities. If there were to be a Marvel movie for the Disney streaming service, would that be you guys or would that be the Disney TV people? You know, the, the I mean, the Marvel TV. There have been, there've been, we've started discussing the, the streaming service. It's going to be an important, important uh, thing for the company. Uh, and, uh, and we're figuring out what our involvement will be in it now. Um, is, uh, you've, I keep on hearing you say post- Phase three, uh-huh. and you've said in the past that there is no phase four. Uh, I think I said that w- I would would it be, even be called phase four. Might be, yeah. But what you know, or will it not be? What does that mean? <laughs> it means we're focusing on finishing phase three and delivering on the promise okay. that we that we made at the El Capitan so many years ago. Uh, uh, that was a long time ago now, and yet all the movies we announced haven't come out yet. We we still don't know the title of Avengers four. Right. When when can we expect to to learn that? I think uh, uh, you know towards the end of the year and in the fall. The the other interesting thing I think you guys are doing is you have ten years and twenty films, and you've built up all these expectations built in of like what a Marvel movie is, and you've been playing against those expectations. Like at Infinity where there's not the mid credit scene, and there was gasps in every screening I've seen of it, and in this film, uh, the after credits uh, question mark. 
I think you're playing. Like, can you talk about that? Because you guys, I think, are now having fun with us a little bit. I think we always have. I mean, it's yeah. always been, it's always been, uh, you know, and I wouldn't say intentional to 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 uh, uh, pull the rug out or anything. It's just, an, it's just always been. What do we think would be fun? And just when people think they know what the what the formula is, we do something different. Just because we want to, 20 films in 10 years, we always want to shift and we always want to change and we always want to do things. Not having a mid-credit scene in Infinity War was the, the idea, probably four years ago, was going back to, and then it'll do this, and it'll be shocking, and then the credits will roll, and then they'll look for hope, and there'll be nothing. <laughs> so the first time I saw that was at the premiere, when people, when everybody gasped. There's there's one no, more. Yeah, question. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, when I'm watching this film... I see them that whole contraption of them to enter the quantum realm. I know you're a big fan of the Disney theme parks, but I see that and I'm like, oh my god, that's like a Disney ride meant to happen. <laughs> the tunnel, you mean? The, yeah. The, the thing, yeah. Like that would it, be cool. Do, when you're designing this stuff, does that ever like the movie itself? Yeah, does that ever enter your mind? Like this Always. could be the perfect. Always. I mean, going back to from before Disney bought us, we used to walk around in uh, Heimdall's observatory on the set of Thor One. Um, and be like, this would be a great, like, this could be the cue of a ride, and you go on Bifrost. And stuff. So that's just the way we think. Now, you know, we, we can talk with Imagineers who are all starting to put it together. So it's kind of incredible. It's finally happening. It's finally happening. Well, thank you. Thanks, thank you man. so much. Good seeing you. Good nice seeing you. And next up is my interview with director Peyton Reed. Uh, we talk about the, how the development process was different from the first film. Uh, this film has a subplot with uh, close-up magic. As you know, I'm a magician and a member of the Magic Castle, so I had to bring that up and find out the story beyond, behind that. Uh, we talk about the films that inspired the sequel and uh, the how they accomplished the shrinking effects for some of the, some of the um, sequences in the film. And uh, we talk about hidden Easter eggs and the editing process and how much longer the assembly cut was, all that and more. Uh, again, there are some plot points discussed in this interview, but I don't think it's anything super major. Uh, but uh, if you are a spoiler phobe, you might want to wait until you've seen the movie to listen to this interview. Here is Ant-Man and the Wasp director, Peyton Reed. Hey, Peyton. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Feige said that uh, Taika has a poster of this in his production office. He does. I, I actually have the picture disc. Oh, you have the predict- yeah. that, that came out. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Ashamed I, slash proud to say. I've never owned that. I do have the E.T. Coors Light advertisement on the wall. Though. Is that true? Yeah, he's behind the bar and it says, before you drive, phone home. Nice. I was I was wondering like how are they, how is Coors like in a tie in to ET? They would never do sense. that. To, it, no. Well, it doesn't make sense. No. Kids, <laughs> kids, if you're gonna drink Coors Light, okay. Uh, when you came up to the the first film, obviously you know you came on late into the process. Yes. This one, you were very actively involved in development. Uh, how does that begin? Like, do, do they have like an idea? Do they like we want to do a story with ghost? Like, how, how does no, it really is like us getting in a room with the writers um, and really talking about all the things, 
you know, that we had set up in the first movie that we know we wanted to pay off or, or further in this movie. Um, and really sort of just batting around just general ideas. There's no template whatsoever, which is really nice. And particularly for the Ant-Man movies, which, you know, we didn't have any of the narrative responsibility of dealing with, you know, Infinity Stones or anything like that. So we could operate in our own little corner. What we did know is that <clears throat> this movie had to be not only a sequel to Ant-Man, but also to Civil War. You couldn't ignore... And you knew, like, right away that this is going to take place before Infinity War, we don't have to deal with that. Right away, we knew it really just had to deal with Ant-Man and Civil War. We knew we were going to come out before Infinity War, but um, we really didn't deal at all with if we were going to have to or not have to deal with any of the fallout of that movie. Um... Or if we were how how directly or indirectly we were going to address it in the body of our movie, there were various ideas that we and the writers threw around for a long time. Uh, so it was really just amassing sort of what the story was going to be, and then sort of figuring out that aspect of the movie later into the process. But we knew we had to deal with. I knew. I knew I had very strong feelings about well, if Scott had taken the suit and, and gotten involved with the infighting with the Avengers, that's Hank Pym's worst nightmare. Yeah. You're taking my tech that I've entrusted with you and exposing it to the Avengers and exposing it to Tony Stark and then also getting thrown into the raft and the suit's confiscated. Like, that's, uh, that is a, uh, a fireable offense as far as Hank Pym's concerned. So <laughs> we knew that that was a great starting point for this movie, starting Hank and Hope and Scott uh, estranged from each other. I, I like that. That gave us a really great jumping off point. And also a point that, like, I, I, you know, I've never done a sequel before. And I can only go by, by what I like and don't like in sequels. And I like in sequels when the first movie doesn't start right as the first one ends, where there's water under the bridge and the audience has to play some catch-up as to, like, wait, what happened to them? Why are they not speaking? What's going on? Like, that was, that was exciting to me. Um, one of the early scenes in this movie is the fantastic sequence where uh, they're in that fort with the yeah. the uh, the slide and stuff. Reminded me in a way of like Goonies, even though there's nothing really like that. I, I yeah. guess the Rube Goldberg thing it got me thinking. Like, what movies uh, did you take as inspiration going into this? I think the biggest inspirations, you know, were when we talked about the first movie, really sort of a heist movie. We wanted to stay in the crime genre in this thing and we really talked a lot about like structurally like Elmore Leonard novels like what if Elmore Leonard wrote a science fiction novel and Marvel made a movie of it that was sort of our, our jumping off point but we really looked at movies like um, Midnight Run was a big influence in, in that there's a very simple goal you know De Niro's a bounty hunter he's got to bring in Charles Grodin but then there's the rival bounty hunters and the FBI and all these complications and double crosses that happen that that'd be a cool template for a Marvel movie. Um, and After Hours, the Scorsese movie, was a big one. We like the idea of a very specific timeline. Just over a couple of days, Scott Lang has three days left of house arrest. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, it really was this kind of like one crazy night idea. Um, of course, uh, Bogdanovich's What's Up Doc was a big influence. A movie I loved as a kid and we screened at Marvel, and, and uh, it's like, you know, <clears throat> here's, the, here's the ridiculous comedic car chase through San Francisco, and also the chemistry between Streisand and, and, uh, and uh, Ryan O'Neill in that movie, and that was a big one. And then, you know, just again, 
always going back to like the, I think the Ant-Man movies are different than a lot of the other things in the MCU in that all the action sequences are really they come from a comedic place yeah and Buster Keaton is a giant influence I went back and watched um, Seven Chances again which has to me the greatest chase scene of all time in, in a movie and also to me like one of the earliest examples of a ticking clock in a movie you know, if you're not married by 7 p.m. on your 27th birthday, uh, you're going to not get this, you know, $20 million or whatever it was in the movie. <clears throat> like, that, that kind of thing was like, okay, that's what we're doing. Yeah. We, if we can make a connection to the quantum realm and we can get Janet's location, great. But there's a finite amount of time that we have to do it. And it, it's good for the drama and it's good for the comedy. Uh, I'm a magician. I'm a member of the Magic Castle. Nice. Uh, so I really dug the magic stuff in this. And I, Do you know a, Blake? Blake? Yeah, I know Blake. Yeah, yeah. Blake's good. He didn't tell me he was in this. So I was, mm-hmm. Blake, you know, I'm going to talk to him. Uh, I, I want to know where did that come from, the whole subplot, I guess. I think the, the subplot started with, um, I think it was Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, the writers. Yeah. <clears throat> and we talked about, um, and Paul. We talked about all the things like if Scott Lang is on house arrest for essentially for two years, all the things he's going to do to try and entertain not only his daughter but himself. And we were all fans of close-up, close-up magic. And I think it was Chris and Eric who came with the idea of the online close-up magic. <laughs> and, and the idea is like that's so up Scott Lang's alley. But then how it could sort of filter into the larger plot and this ridiculous specific thing that he did under house arrest, you know, uh, culminating this idea of like, this is my plan to how to lure ghost out, misdirection, you know. And, uh, and so we just kind of went with it. And it even informed a gag we do late in the movie with the giant man suit, where uh, they're trying to create a diversion for Scott to get back home in the giant suit and it deflates. Yeah. And we never explain in the movie how he did it. You see Scott running away in his underwear. We never explain it. And we thought a lot about, like, do we need to get more specific about how to explain this? And it's like, no, man. It's, it's, we've set it up. It's magic. The magician never gives away his secrets. And, you know, and it was a great thing for, for Randall Park and for Paul to play. Like, Randall Park, who's agent Jimmy Wu, who's tasked with enforcing the, 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 you know, the house arrest. Um, but he also kind of is a little envious of Scott. He, he digs Scott. Yeah. He's really intrigued by that magic. And you see him in his office practicing <laughs> the magic. It, 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 was, it was fun comedically and, and weirdly dramatically. How did, uh, briefly, how did Blake get involved? Well, we needed a technical consultant. And, uh, and he's the guy. He's the guy, man. And, you know, when he was on set, he came around, you know, several times when we were doing just the simple card tricks and we were doing some of the other stuff. And he would always do tricks for the crew, and it was just, I'm blown away by that stuff. I don't have to tell you, you know, yeah, if you're a member of Magic Castle, that stuff blows me away. Um, one sequence in this movie that I, I found particularly funny and amazing is, like, the high school scene where Scott's, like, changing sizes. I can't imagine from a technical aspect how you film that, because you have hope in the same Yeah. Screen. Like, how does that work? I have to tell you, there's a lot of complicated stuff happening in the movie, and in that you know, it's a relatively short sequence in the movie. And when you look at it... And most of the time you can write it off as CG. Yeah. But in that scene, like, it just doesn't seem... Yeah. And it was weird because most people will see that scene and say, okay, that's funny, I laugh. But, like, because it's kind of the most mundane scene in terms of the way it's shot and you're just in a school and he's different sizes. But it was the most headache-inducing technical challenge out of everything in the movie because 
it's in a mundane, it's at a school, you know what that looks like, and you just want it to be photo real. But the math involved, because he's two feet tall, then he's big, then he's three feet tall, and it constantly changes. And the visual effects department has to do all the, the literal algebra to, to make it work and to shoot these plates. It was so meticulous. And I think I, I rarely get frazzled on the set, but those couple of days that we were doing that, it was like... So are you ever creating like mobile versions of that set in different sizes or is it just the like, only the screen? only the janitor's closet just the janitor's <clears> closet. the closet was the one that we did sort of a you know different scales of, of stuff um and of course for the you know when he's running down the stairs at the end that's the real location but then we built this insane scaled green screen staircase for Paul to go down yeah and uh the first film had uh Janet kind of hidden in there you hid her in the quantum realm is there anything we should be looking out for in viewing this one? Yeah, there's a lot of <clears throat> little hidden things. I mean, definitely, as you go through Hank Pym's laboratory um, on the practical set and then some of the stuff we added later digitally, um, there are a lot of weird little Easter eggs and things. Uh, and then, <clears throat> you know, as we kind of go further down into the quantum realm in this movie, there are definitely some things to, to sort of look for. That was a challenge, the quantum realm, because it really could be infinite. It could be anything. Yeah. And figuring out how much of our story um, took place in the quantum realm and, and particularly like designing that last act that cross-cuts between the chase and the quantum realm. But there's stuff to look for in there, definitely. And my last question is involving that, because when you, at the press conference you were talking about the editing, especially that last act. I'm wondering like, how long was like the assembly cut? Because there's probably a lot of improv and... like Is it like much larger the editor's assembly before I even started director's cut yeah. was um, still pretty lean I think it was like two hours and 20 minutes and I've had this whole like you know this is was my mantra on the first movie and, and this one it's like it cannot be over two hours um, it's amazing how fast Infinity War moves at whatever it is two hours and 45 minutes yeah. it moves um, but because this is comedic uh, and because it is a more intimate story, it just feels like it wants to be. I, I, I like really dense, tight movies. And I also like, hopefully, that it's a repeat viewing experience. Um, but yeah, it's, it was, I think, maybe 220 and then just getting it down. A lot of the stuff suggested itself. But really, as you, you know, sort of start to cut for action and for comedy, it, it, it starts to tighten. And there's, you know, then, there, then there are the things where it's like, oh, this thing is great, but... I don't think there's a place for it in the story now. You know, those things where you have to yeah. execute a scene. Well, thank you so much, Peyton. Yeah, thank you. Good Appreciate to see it. you. See you too. And there you have it. Hopefully you have enjoyed this episode of Slash Film Daily. This podcast is published every weekday on SlashFilm.com and all the popular podcast apps, including iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify. Uh, please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com. Leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. Uh, and uh, as always, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday.